Dorian is here to preach the word. Can we give him a huge round of applause as he starts? Thank you, Jess. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I was seeing all those volunteer spots, I was going, yes. Oh, no, no, that one. Oh, that one. If you're a bit confused, that's okay. You know? Put down a few of them if you want. Come along on the Saturday on the 27th, and maybe by then you will have figured out which are the ones that you really want to kind of focus on. And if you want to speak to somebody in those, you're well more than welcome to do that as well before you make your final decision. So greetings from Pastor Simon and Lindy, um, who I think this weekend were in New York City. I'm not sure if they're still there now. Suffering for Jesus. Yes, we know. <laughs> no, it's an honor and a privilege for us to send them up to the Every Nation World Conference. And uh, I know they're having some good family time on the way through there. And we look forward to hearing just what God is doing in their lives and in the lives of our family across the world. And so we look forward to hear what God is doing at the World Conference in a few weeks' time when they're back. So, we've been on a journey together. Uh, we've been looking at the series, God at Work, and I'm wrapping up the series tonight and particularly looking at the concept of work and kingdom and how God wants to use us in the marketplace to build and establish His kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been super encouraged over the last three weeks just hearing some of our friends, some of our fellow Every Nation congregant members standing here and sharing some of their real experiences application of truth in the marketplace. And I've been encouraged because as we see them pressing into areas in their lives, it gives us a hope and a, you know, and a faith to say, my gosh, if that can work for Tony, that can happen and that can work for me too. If Annie's able to do that in those areas, then I know that God can do the same for me. Amen. And so uh, we just glory and we're just so excited that we're able to do this together as a family. So as we take a closer look at God's overall purpose for us in the marketplace, I was reminded about our vision statement at Every Nation. And um, if you don't remember it, I put it up. And our vision statement simply says this. It says, we want to see lives, communities, and society transformed. I remember when we sat down and crafted this. We spent days, we spent weeks, we spent, we knew what was in our heart for the city. We knew it was in our heart for the church. But we were saying, God, help us get the right words so that we can communicate this effectively. And we want to see lives, community, society transformed. Not just converted. Not just encouraged. Not just touched. Although all of those things are good, but that can't be where it ends. Because we're saying in order for us to be effective as a church in the city, we want to see lives completely transformed. They were heading in one direction, they're now heading completely in the other direction to achieve all that God has purposed for them to achieve. And how do we want to do this? We want to do this through the concept that Jesus introduced called discipleship. When he commanded his disciples before he went to heaven, the last thing he commanded them to do was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, making disciples of them. And so we are saying, God, we know the only way for lives to be transformed, for communities and society to be transformed, is through discipleship. And in which areas do we want to disciple? There were three in particular that we just felt God impressing on us. The first one is discipleship and the word. And what is the word? The word is truth. The word is that plumb line, that ultimate God, that ultimate authority. If I want to be sure that I'm walking in line with what God is calling me to do, I measure it up according to his word. If it lines up, I'm good. 
If it doesn't line up, let me get in line with what God's Word says. Now, unless I know that truth, unless I'm sure about what God's Word says, I will constantly be kind of wondering, "Mm, is this God? Is this me? Is this what? No, I need to know the Word. And so firstly, we disciple people in the Word. Secondly, we want to disciple people in the presence. And what's the presence speak of? The presence speaks of relationship with God. You see, it's not enough for Pastor Saviwe to have a relationship with God and for me to access it through there. I need my own relationship with God. Because God wants to commune commune with me just like He wants to commune with Pastor Saviwe and the way He wants to commune with you. And so we said we want to experience the presence of God. We want to have that passionate, intimate relationship with God, our Father, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And thirdly, we said we want to have the presence and the power And the power speaks of partnering with the Holy Spirit because we believe that God wants us to operate supernaturally. We believe that God wants the supernatural to be as a normal part of our lives as breathing, as eating, as drinking coffee. That's what God wants. He wants us to partner with the Holy Spirit in the supernatural. And so we sat down and when we got this, we said, Lord, we think that's it. And we know it's that because that's been our vision statement for, the, I think, at least six or seven years now. And then I sat down and I thought, God, what is my vision statement for my family? And after sitting down and processing for a while, I came up with this. And I believe the vision statement for the Wrigley's is this, to see lives, communities, and society transformed through discipleship in the Word, the presence, and the power of God. Why? Because when I pray for my daughter, Alexandra, I say, God, I pray that she will know the truth, that she will be stuck into your word, that that word will become a plumb line in her life that she might be able to know how she is to grow going forward. When I pray for my son, Dominic, I say, Lord, I pray that he will experience an intimate relationship with you as his God and Father, closer even than his relationship with me as his earthly father. And when I pray for Belinda, I say, God, I pray that we'll be able to model your power in such a real and such a tangible way that those that we, commu- that those that we are interact with, our children, our friends, our family will all see, my gosh, the supernatural can be as real in my life as it is in theirs. And so there's no difference when I think about the vision statement for my family as I do when I think about the vision statement for our church. And then I sat down and I said, so what about the vision statement for my business? For Ombono. And I came up with this. To see lives, communities, and society transformed through discipleship in the Word, the presence, and the power of God. Why? Because whether they're colleagues, partners, suppliers, or customers, I want them to experience God's truth, God's presence, and God's power. Amen? And so I realized, God, this vision statement is about building your kingdom. It's about establishing your kingdom firstly in our lives and then in the lives of others. But how do we build God's kingdom? Well, Jesus showed us in Matthew chapter 6 when he taught his disciples how to pray. Because this is what he said. He started by saying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, to establish God's kingdom on earth is simply to tap into the heart of God, to find out what's on God's heart and to call down God's heart, God's purpose, God's desires from heaven down to earth. That's all it means to establish God's kingdom. 
In effect, what we are saying is we're saying to establish God's kingdom means to bring the way and the will of God into every area of life, including the marketplace. Now, when I see Christians engaging with God and with the world, I see three different types of believers. Christians who engage with God and the world in three different ways. And only one of them, I believe, is the way God actually wants us to engage with the world. The first group of Christians I see are those that are called receptors. These guys immerse themselves in the culture, the popular culture of the day. They immerse themselves in the world, and you can tell absolutely no difference from these Christians and everybody else on the treadmill of society. And if you can't tell the difference, then maybe there isn't a difference, or certainly there isn't enough of a difference of what God is doing in their lives. How many of you know that God hasn't called us to be receptors? Amen? The second category of Christians I see are rejectors. And these guys are just so disgusted by what they see in the world and so fearful that they're going to be contaminated by the world that they cut themselves off from it, they isolate themselves, and they reject everything to do with the popular culture, reject everything to do with the marketplace. Now, the only problem with this is that these Christians then come across as being disconnected, aloof, arrogant, and self-righteous. And when the world is looking for real solutions, very often the last people they're going to go to are people that have isolated themselves and rejected. And friends, how many of you know God hasn't called us to be rejectors either? But God has called us to be reformers. God has called us to be those that understand what is happening in popular culture, but not to be absorbed by it. To know who our God is, to know the relationship that we have for Him, to seek His heart for every single situation and every single way and purpose of life and to say, God, help me to be a catalyst of change, to bring about your plans, your purposes, your kingdom, and influence the popular culture of the day. Friends, reformers are doers of the Lord's prayer and not just hearers only. So how have reformers done this? When we look at the lives of reformers, let's see if we can find some traits that have been part of their lives so that we can imitate and say, God, help us so that we can become effective reformers in the 21st century. And so in order to understand reformers, we can go in history. We can look at people like Martin Luther, who was known as the father of the Reformation, who wrestled for 35 years with this concept of sin that, he was, that was eating him alive before God before it dawned on him and God revealed to him that it was by grace that we are justified. But he had to grapple for 35 years. There's William Wilberforce, who for 25 years in Parliament in the United Kingdom fought against to get slavery outlawed. This wasn't an easy thing for him to do. But how did he do it? People like Daniel, people like Joseph, Daniel who served under four different Babylonian kings, evil Babylonian kings, but yet was a reformer in the day. And Joseph, who went through incredible hardship, but God used him in order to save the world from famine. Not just the Egyptian nation, but his own people as well. And so what are the traits that we see in these people? Well, first and foremost, 
Every time we see the life of a reformer, we see this trait. Reformers embrace technical excellence with integrity. Reformers are those that do not shy away from putting in the hard yards to understand the issues of the day. In a sense, reformers are those that when they understand them and when they've assimilated them and when they understand God's heart for them, what they do is by they're able to communicate them so effectively that they build a credibility bridge between them and their organization. It's almost in a sense is the doorway to get yourself into the room. It's the doorway to say, you can count on me because I am trying to understand how we as a company can be more profitable, how we as a team can be more effective, how we can achieve our goals uh, in, a, in a better and a more expedient way. Because reformers first and foremost say, let me understand what needs to be done and let me put in the work that's required in order to bridge the credibility gap. And when they do this, they do this with integrity free of pride, and free of arrogance. And it doesn't always go smoothly. Very often there is significant opposition. Very often there are those that are trying to kind of trip them up in the process. But reformers say, regardless of that, I'm going to figure out what the right answer is. What is the solution in this particular circumstance? But the second thing that I see in the lives of reformers is this, folks. That once reformers have built that credibility, once they've established their skills and their credentials, and these are world-class skills and credentials, they don't use those to simply edify themselves, work on their own wealth and their own prosperity and their own health, but they prepare to sacrifice this and lay down their lives because they want to see transformation in their companies and in the lives of others. You see, they are not selfish. They're not serving this for their own purposes. They're saying, God, you've given me this skill. You've given me this talent. You've given me this ability. How can I use this to transform and build your kingdom in this place? And so before I share an example or two from my own life, I want us to look at Daniel because we've been using Daniel as a key book uh, for this whole series. And so what do we see with Daniel and his friends? Well, in chapter one, what's happened? The Babylonians have conquered Judah. They've taken them into captivity, and they've taken the best of the best, the young men from, you know, from the best families, the smartest, the best looking, and they've taken them to their university in Babylon because they want to use these men to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the king has got this program that he's put in place. He's put out the best food, the best wine. It's, this is kind of like, you know, this is kind of the Harvard of the day, and these guys are being put through their paces to learn all about Babylon to learn about the culture, to learn about the laws, to learn about their traditions. So what do these four friends do? They throw themselves wholeheartedly into understanding how the Babylonian culture works. But they are very careful not to be absorbed by that culture. Their biggest problem is that they can't eat the food, the great food that's been put before them because these are Jewish boys. And so the pork chops, the bacon in the morning... My gosh, it would have been so easy for them to go, yeah, we're far from home. My gosh, let's just tuck in here. But they go, sorry, we cannot serve our God and eat this stuff at the same time. So they go and speak to the dean. And they say, sir, please, we can't eat this food. It is against our culture, our tradition. We'll be sinning against our God. He says, you've got a problem. I've got a problem. 
My problem is, is that the king finds out that you're not eating the food and you guys look a little off, you look a little sick, you're not as fit as the rest. I, it's my head on the block. Daniel says, I'll tell you what, I've cut a deal with you. Test us for two weeks. Give us only water and veggies. And look and test us after two weeks. And if we are weaker than the rest, we'll eat your food. See, Daniel trusted his God. Bible tells us that after two weeks, the dean comes along, looks at them, and he sees these guys are stronger, fitter, smarter, healthier than all the others. And he says, okay, boys, you want water and veggies? There we are. You go for it. And so the boys eat water and vegetables for the full period of time when they're at the Babylonian University. And what happens? It comes to the end of their degree, and King Nebuchadnezzar tests all of them. And this is what he finds. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel. Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. Listen to this, guys. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now, these are Jewish boys, and they probably are a little smarter than the rest. But! But! Ten times? This is miraculous, folks. This is not just genetics, all right? This is miraculous. Because four young men said, God, we will not compromise. We're going to hold on to your truth. And they put their God to the test in their lives. And so the first way that this then gets tested is King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's so freaked out about this dream that he calls his wise men and his enchanters and is about to tell them the dream and he goes, wait a minute. I'm so freaked out and you guys are so smart. You tell me what I dreamt. The wise men all go, no, king, it doesn't work that way. You, you tell us what the dream, about the dream, we tell you what it means. He says, no ways. I'm not falling for that. How do I know? You're not just making it up. Of course, not one of the wise men can tell the king what he dreamt. So the king gets so irritated, he says, that's it. Every last one of you, you're done for, including Daniel and his mates. So they come along to Daniel's place and they say, Daniel, get ready. You, you know. Daniel says, why? He says, the guy tells him about the king. He says, give me 24 hours. Daniel presses in, seeks God. 24 hours later, he's with the king. He tells the king what he dreamt about the statue. Head of gold, chest of silver, you know, loins of, um, of bronze, and then iron, and iron and clay. And he tells the king exactly what the dream means. Friends, there is a complete reversal of roles. The king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and a revealer of the mysteries. You were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him, and made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. So Daniel gets an opportunity to seek God and save the lives of all the other wise men in Babylon and serve the king. But things get worse or better, depending how you look at it. 
Because the same king, the same king that kind of thought that these guys are so smart and so hot in chapter one, in chapter three, the same king has forgotten about how smart these boys are, and he sets up this statue, tells everybody to worship it, but of course, Daniel and his friends won't do it. And so the king, forgetting that he kind of thought they were so awesome, now says, listen, if you don't bow down to the statue, I'm going to kill you. They say, I'm sorry, king, you're going to have to kill us. So he throws them into a fiery furnace, jacks up the heat, super, super hot. No sooner are these boys in and he looks and he goes, hold on, we put in three, but there's four guys walking around there. And so he runs to the edge, well, not too close because it was super hot, and he calls them and he says, guys, come. And they step out and the Bible tells us not only were they not hurt in any way, but their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You see, folks, here are a group of men that are passionate about understanding the issues of the day, passionate about serving the king, passionate about making his life better, but they will not compromise. They are the smartest guys in the room, but they're laying down their lives because they want to serve something greater. Two kings later, Darius, the Medes and the Persians have taken over Babylon. Again, Daniel is right at the top. He's one of three that reads up the entire kingdom. All the governors report to them. But guess what? His two friends, the 120 governors, they're not thrilled by the fact there's this foreigner that's in charge of them all. And so they want to trick him and they want to get rid of him. But how many of you know it's quite hard to trick Daniel? Because Daniel is, it cannot be corrupted. He will not fall for any form of corruption. He's not a tentropreneur. You know, he doesn't take, you know, backhanders. So no matter what they try with Daniel, they can't trick him. And so they know the only way they're going to get Daniel is if they get him, if they get him to kind of in some way use his integrity against him. So what they do is they can't trick Daniel, so they go and trick the king. Darius, you're so awesome. You're so amazing. You're a wonderful king. He goes, yeah, yeah, I am. How about this king? For the next 30 days, nobody worships anybody except you. I think that's an awesome idea, Darius says. They say, just sign your king. Put it into a decree because the decree of the Medes and Persians can never be overturned. Because these boys knew that Daniel prayed three times a day. No sooner does Daniel hear the decree that it's back to business. And his business is the business of prayer. He has the habit of opening his window towards Jerusalem and praying three times a day. And these boys are waiting. And as soon as Daniel does it, they grab him, drag him before the king. And no sooner have they done that, that the king realizes, oh my gosh, what have I done? Bible tells us that for, for hours, that whole afternoon, the king's looking for a loophole to try and get Daniel saved. But he can't find a loophole because his decree is watertight. And so sunset comes, Daniel's into the lion's den. But how many of you know Daniel's God knows how to keep hungry lions' mouths shut too? Amen. Darius doesn't sleep a wink. He is wrestling. He is up and down. He's fretting. Rushes there at sunrise the next morning to look in, expecting to see a pile of bones at the bottom of the lion's den. And there's Daniel. Oh, hey, king. How's it going? 
Darius is over the moon. And what he does is he says this. When Daniel learned that the decree, sorry, verse 26, the king issues a new decree that in every part of the kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. Daniel chapter 11 says that Daniel, Daniel's role was to serve and protect the king. And there were four of them, four different kings at the time of Daniel. And Daniel served and protected each one of them. How many of you know that when one administration comes in and another administration goes out, you know, the, the cabinet ministers don't keep their positions, right? Daniel serves four different kings from different empires and every single one of them, he rises right to the top because Daniel's a reformer. Daniel understands what it means to be connected. He understands the issues of the day, but he understands how to lay down his life to serve something greater than himself. Daniel understood Colossians 3.23, even though the Apostle Paul hadn't written yet yet. But Daniel understood that whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. You see, folks, when we work for God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we are loved or whether we are hated. It doesn't matter whether it's going smoothly or whether it's going more difficult. Because when we're working for God, we realize that we're not serving man. We're serving Him. And ultimately, our success is based on whether we're going to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And so, friends, as reformers in the marketplace, God is calling us to establish His kingdom, to operate with excellence and integrity, in a sense, to clear that credibility hurdle, earn the right to be in the room, be the one that can be a smart, effective, and efficient contributor to what your company's aims and objectives are. But then do that in such a way that you can seek an opportunity to see the lives of people transformed. In two ways. Through the economic benefit of your participation. But also to see that they will become all that God has called them to be. Because he has a plan and a purpose for their life too. But you don't understand, my boss is the devil. A bit like Daniel's, right? And if your boss happens to be the devil, then Jeremiah has the answer for you. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I don't know how many of you feel like the job, your office feels like you've been carried off into exile. It's like, oh my gosh. God says, pray for the prosperity of that office. Pray for the prosperity of that team, because as they prosper, you will prosper too. Dorian, but surely being a reformer is much easier if you are the boss. And yes, there are times when it is easier to be a reformer as the one in charge, as the one who can set the agenda, as the one who can set the tone. But there are drawbacks to that too, because those that report to you may just simply be doing it because, hey, it could be career limiting if they don't. And so you're not sure always whether they are really embracing it in their heart or whether this is just somebody towing the line because, hey, this is what the boss wants. And so I find myself in times, places where I am the leader, 
but I often find myself in places where I'm not. And can I tell you what's great about the places where I'm not? The places where I'm not cause me to just be a whole lot more circumspect and humble and seek God as to how I can bring about his plans and his purposes. Like Daniel, like Joseph, these guys weren't the bosses. They served the bosses, and believe me, they had to stay on their toes because there were people out to get them all the time. Recently, I had to go through a Section 189 process at my office. For those of you that don't know what it means, it means a retrenchment process. We haven't had to do that before at Mbono, but I just knew that where God was taking us as a company required us to look, relook at the team. And it was super tough because some of the people that are no longer with us had been with us for 10, 15 years. And so I had a responsibility on my shoulders, and I said, God, you've got to help me here. Because I've got to do what's right, but I've got to do it with integrity, God, and I've got to do it with love and heart because I want to see them prosper in every single area of their life. And, that may, and because that may not be at Mbono, doesn't mean that you don't want them to prosper, and I want to see them prosper. But how many of you know it was hard for many of those people to receive that from me at that moment? But praise God, there were colleagues that could come around them with the same heart to lay down their life and the same heart to see their lives transformed and the same heart to see them growing in this new exciting field where God has for them. And so I had a responsibility, but fortunately I was part of a team. And we were able to rally around those that are no longer part of the Umbono team. But we are trusting that they too will find their sweet spot in God, even though it may not be part of the company that many of them have been part of for many, many years. And so friends, yes, Sometimes it can be easier as the boss, but sometimes, most times, God wants us to establish his kingdom, not with those that can call the shots, but those that serve others, because it keeps us humble, it keeps us on the place where we can say, God, you show me what the right answer is in this place. Parents, our role is just so, so critical if we are wanting to build and grow the next generation of reformers. God has called us to impart and to disciple to the next generation. And in order for us to grow a generation of reformers that are going to be effective, it's important that we carry the right values in our lives. And so parents, we need to make sure that we disciple out of our children those unrighteous habits that want to be formed, like greed and selfishness and loss of self-control. And we need to disciple in those righteous habits like work ethic and a desire for excellence and integrity at any cost and sacrificial attitude to serve, even at my own expense. When I was young, and this was way before the times of EFTs, my parents would go to the bank each month to draw out the tithes and offerings. And as a young boy, I would see, you know, the, 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 the wad of cash and I'd go, wow, man, that is so much money. What are we going to do with that? And my parents would explain the principle of tithes to me. And I'd go, my gosh, do we have to give all of that? I mean, couldn't we just use some of that for ourselves? And they again explained the principle of tithing and how this was God's, not ours. And that if we were faithful with tithing, God would bless us and protect us and look after us. And I thank God for those principles that they established in my life when I was young, four, five, six years old. Because when I was 16 and I got my first part-time job at Edgar's selling shoes on a weekend, and I was earning three rand fifty an hour. How many you know 35 cents wasn't hard for me to do? Because my parents had modeled it for me. And at the age of 23, 24, when I got my first job as a young engineer, 
and I earn three and a half thousand rand a month. Yeah, yeah, you guys can see I'm older than 50, right, you know? <laughs> three and a half thousand rand a month. It wasn't hard for me to go 350 rand of that. I could do the calcs, you know, I could do the sums. Lord, that's yours. Because my parents had instilled the principle of tithing into my life from a young age, and I'm so grateful for that. Those of you that know me know that I absolutely love cycling. I, 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 uh, I, I talk about it. I watch it. I cycle. I, I have got a, I've got, I collect bicycles. I collect clothes with bicycles on them. Even my cufflinks, you can see them. They've got bicycles on them. I love bikes. And fortunately, I've been able to be fairly successful at some races. And this one is my most successful race I've ever been part of, called the Tour of Good Hope. In 2017, the Tour of Good Hope runs over five days. It's a five-stage race, and uh, it's in the big mountains of the Western Cape. And um, in 2016, I tried to win this, and I'd been in the yellow jersey at the, end of the, at the end of day three. But on day four, coming through Wellington, through a section with roadworks, I hit a Chevron board, blow out on my back tire, lost about two minutes, and that was enough to put me out of the yellow jersey and out of contention. I was gutted, man. I was absolutely gutted. Anyway, I came back in 2017. In 2016, I had a whole team around me. But in 2017, I came back and I said, okay, Lord, maybe, maybe this time we can correct the error from last year. But 2017 didn't go as well at the beginning. The end of the time trial, which was on day two, I was a minute and a half, 90 seconds off the yellow jersey. It was the guy in the right, red shirt there on the right-hand side. His name's Tom. And I thought to myself, okay, well, tomorrow is my favorite stage. It goes over the Frontrick Pass, and it ends at the top of the Toys Clove Pass. And God, maybe, just maybe I can pull something together, and I can kind of eat in some of the time. Maybe I can do something on that stage. The Toys Clove Pass is a 25-kilometer climb. We start the climb, and I'm on, and I'm on, and I'm on. And slowly, we're shredding people out the back. And at the end of the day, the three of us are left. And we go through the tunnel under Toys Cliff, if you know it, and there's another six kilometers to go to the top. And I'm putting down the hammer, and I'm putting down the hammer, and I realize I'm not dropping these guys. And so I started to myself, okay, Lord, well, maybe, maybe I can just try for the stage one. I'm not going to be able to take the yellow, but maybe a stage one, Lord. Kilometer and a half from the top. I'm kind of now sitting, just conserving energy, waiting for the right moment. Maybe the last 200 meters I can sprint for the stage. And all of a sudden I notice Tom drifts to the back, and Tom's off the back. And I go, oh my goodness, what's going on? And I, here's my opportunity. And so I put down the hammer and I'm gone, I'm on and I'm on and on. And I'm looking up and I can see the finish line a kilometer up the hill. And I want it to end. But at the same time, I know it mustn't end yet because I must put as much distance between myself and Tom. And I'm going and I'm going and I'm going. And I power meter my numbers. I'm crazy. And I get to the finish line and I just about fall off my bicycle. And I start looking at my clock. And 30 seconds go by, and 60 seconds go by, and 90 seconds go by, and now I'm in the yellow jersey, and I'm watching, and I can see Tom coming up the hill, and now 30 seconds go by, 45 seconds, and I'm, yes, I'm in the yellow jersey by 45 seconds, and I'm so excited. But there's still two more days of this tour left to go. <laughs> and I don't have a team around me on this tour like I did in 2016. But I do have something. I have a reformer as a teammate. I have a guy called Justin Lloyd who's riding this tour with me. Now let me tell you guys about Justin. Justin is one of the toughest, hardest cyclists I know. 
Justin's the kind of guy that can put out power numbers that are absolutely insane. I'm old, but I'm light, so I can go uphill fast. But Justin is young, and he's full power, and maybe he's not as fast up a hill, but on the flats, nobody can touch this guy. Justin's got the opportunity to win a stage or two before the end of this tour. But Justin makes a decision. He says, this is not about me, Doreen. This is about us bringing the yellow home for you. And so Justin puts himself out there. And instead of just taking off into the distance to go and win a stage for himself, Justin is right there, and I'm sitting on his wheel. And those boys in red, they are attacking me every opportunity they can. And there's three of them, right? And one goes. And then the next one goes, and then the third one goes, and they are just saying, we're going to break this guy. But they don't have a reformer on their team. And Justin, all he says, he says, Dorian, sit on my wheel. And every time an attack goes, he just slowly rides me back in onto the wheel of the attacker. We come to the end of stage five. It ends going up to the tall monument. Three kilometers left, that's the end of it. And he deposits me at the foot of that climb with Tom and the other guy right there. And he says, Dorian, he falls off his bike pretty much at the bottom of the climb. He says, bro, go for it. And I piddle my heart out and I hang on and I come third on that stage and I keep the yellow jersey by 25 seconds. Now, I want to tell you, folks, Justin's not on that podium. But I had two yellow jerseys, and I gave him one of them because I said, bro, this yellow jersey is as much yours as it is mine. And friend, God is calling us to be Justins. God is calling us to be reformers. Those who are excellent in their own right, world-class in their own right, but prepared to lay down their lives for others to see God's kingdom established in the workplace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you, Father, that you're raising up a generation of reformers, those that will not be absorbed, those who will not be isolated, but those that will be transformers in the culture. As I was preparing this week, God gave me a word. I believe there's many people in this room and you've gone through the mill in the marketplace. I believe there's many people in the room and you've been set up, you've been lied about, you've been challenged. And God will say to you that I see what you've been through. And God says this, he says, my son, my daughter, I love you and I have your back. And I see the end, even though you may not see it right now. And let me tell you, says the Lord, that your success is not about those that would attack you. Your success is not about the environment in which you find yourself. Your success is about me and only about me. 
And friends, if you're ready to walk in the success that God has for you, if you're ready to walk as a reformer in the world, in the marketplace, in your school, in your university, then what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to stand to your feet because we're going to say, God, have your way in our lives and set us apart that we might be what you've called us to be. And so will you stand to your feet if that's you and you're saying, God, I want to be a reformer in the marketplace and in this, in this world. So Lord, we just stand before you and we say, God, use us. Lord, we forgive those that have hurt us. We release those that would want to say and do evil towards us. And Father, we put our faith and our trust in you. God, we want to be reformers. We want to be those that serve the companies, the people, the teams in which you've placed us. We want to do it with excellence. We want to do it with integrity, Father. And we're going to lay our lives down to see your plans and your purposes established. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whilst you're standing here, if you're here this evening, maybe you're standing, maybe you're sitting, I'm not sure, but you, almost as you were praying, you were feeling this. You were feeling, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve God to give me this success and this blessing to be a reformer. And maybe you're feeling that because you don't have a relationship with Him. You don't know Him as your God, as your Father, as your King, as your Lord, and as your Savior. If that's you, would you just very quickly, just wave your hand at me because I want to pray for you. I just want to see, is there anybody here this evening? Anybody here and you're saying, and you're saying I want that personal relationship with God. Is there anybody? Okay. Well, if you know you should have had your hand up and you didn't put it up, then come speak to me afterwards because I'll be here. Amen. God bless you.